0: Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33 this morning. Paul stated in in verses 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 9 that he sincerely mourned that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, rejected the gospel by and large, that so many of his fellow Jews rejected the gospel. He sincerely mourned over that, and he wished, he said, I, I, I wish that I could be cut off for their sake. Of course, he knew it didn't work that way, but that was the, that, that reflected the sincerity of his heart. I wish that I could be cut off so that my, my fellow Jews could be saved instead. However, It's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though God has somehow forsaken the Jews. It's not as though he has failed to keep his promises. It's not as if he's changed his mind regarding the Jews and now somehow he's turned on them, which led us in in chapter 9, verse 14 to the question, what shall we say then? And we're going to see that again in this passage. But at that time, he asks, is there injustice on God's part? So many Jews fail to receive the gospel. Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? Is he unjust? Is that what we're going to say? Or are we going to put God on the dock and we're going to sit on the, the judgment seat by no means, he says in verse 14. Romans chapter 9 is a chapter that reminds us who we are and who God is. He is the potter, we are the clay. Be slow to judge God. Be slow to put God on the, on the dock and to sit in judgment of him. We are the clay. And yet remarkably, undeservedly, we are pots, we are vessels prepared beforehand for glory. Amen? Incredible mercy. Paul appealed to Hosea and to Isaiah in the last passage that we looked at last week. Hosea prophesied that there would come a time in which those who were not God's people would be called God's people. And Paul interprets that in light of the church, that Gentile who were at one time not God's people have been called God's people. And Isaiah prophesied that very few of the Jews would be saved, only a remnant. So what do we make of that? What what do we do with this reality? Or in Paul's words in verse 30, what shall we say then? That's another question. We saw it in, in verse 14. Now we see it here in verse 30. What shall we say then? What do we make of the reality that so few Jews have embraced the gospel and it has gone to the Gentiles who, have, who had nothing to do with Abraham? The promises that came through Abraham were rejected by the Jews and embraced by those that were not Jews. What do we make of that? How do we conclude Paul says in verse 30 through 33, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you have have called a people who are not your people, your people. Lord, we thank you that you have, you have sent the gospel to the Gentiles, even us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that if we have attained faith or if we have attained righteousness, it is because of faith, not as if it were based on works. Lord, I believe that there are still people In the church who are stumbling over Jesus because they seek to establish their own righteousness. Lord, would you open eyes and open hearts this morning and set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's break these first two verses into parts here. So what shall we say then? So how do we conclude? What do we make of all of this? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Listen, the law and the prophets and the promises and the covenants and the patriarchs and and the Messiah did not come through the Gentile line. They didn't come from the Romans or the Greeks or the Danes or the English or Americans. They didn't come through... Gentiles, they came through Jews. They came through Abraham and his descendants. The Gentiles did not even know to seek God, nor did they care to seek God. And yet, they attain righteousness. They did not pursue righteousness, and yet they have attained righteousness. The word that Paul uses here, this this pursue and this attain, this evokes a race. It evokes runners running a race, striving. And Paul says that the Gentiles who pursued righteousness attained it. Why? Because they pursued it by faith. They have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. Unlike the Jews, the Gentiles obtained righteousness or attained righteousness, right standing with God, holiness. You know, we could probably unpack a whole sermon on righteousness. What is that? But it, it is right standing with God. It is, it is clo- just as we sang, we, we lay aside our garments and we are clothed in Christ. When, when God sees the righteous person, when God sees his beloved child, he sees Christ. All sufficient merit is now ours by imputation from Jesus Christ. The righteousness that is by faith. Unlike the Jews Gentiles attained this righteousness because they pursued it by faith. They were undeserving recipients of mercy. They were undeserving recipients of of mercy of a God they did not even know existed, a God they were not even seeking, a God they were not even trying to pursue. And their only contribution to attaining the righteousness of God was responding to the gospel in faith. The Gentiles were dead in sin. They were objects of God's wrath. And when they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel. And if you are a Christian today, the same thing happened to you. You were dead in sin, the object of God's wrath. And when you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel by faith. That is how salvation works, and it doesn't work any other way. And that is why the Israelites stumbled. That is how salvation works. You are dead in sin, and you are made alive in Christ. And because you've been made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit, you respond to the gospel in faith. You believe the gospel of Christ. And there's no other way. And that's why the Gentiles struggled. Uh, Excuse me, that's why the Israelites struggled. Paul continues. He says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Israel thought that they could attain righteousness by obeying the law, but the Old Testament clearly portrays, clearly depicts, that they were unable to do so. They did not succeed in reaching that law. Why, Paul asks in verse 32. Why could Israel not attain the righteousness that the Gentiles attained? This ought to be our question. Why why were the Jews, why were the Israelites who were given the law, given the prophets, given the patriarchs, given the covenants, the Messiah came through them, why is it that they failed to attain a righteousness that you Gentile attained? Why? Paul answers the question. The Gentiles recognized their inability to attain righteousness on their own merit, whereas Israel was convinced that they could. In Luke 18, we read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Perhaps no other parable depicts so clearly the heart of the Israelite. And why they would stumble over Christ. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the the Pharisee, this, this fictional Pharisee, approaches God boldly in the temple. He walks right in, thanking God that he's not like the other sinners in the world. He's not like this tax collector that has also come in. He boasted that he tithed on everything and he fasted twice a week. And the tax collector, on the other hand, couldn't even bring himself to draw near or to lift up his eyes, but rather, with a broken heart, simply asked for mercy. And Jesus said, it was the tax collector and not the pharisee who left that day right in god's eyes like the fictional pharisee paul says the israelites failed to attain the righteousness they failed to reach that law here's why because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works and paul is case in point In Philippians chapter 3, he lets us into the mind of the self-righteous Israelite. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This was undoubtedly what Paul convinced himself before he knew Christ. He is telling us that before I was converted, before Christ intervened, before Christ opened my eyes, before Christ saved me, what I thought was I was blameless under the law i was righteous he truly believed before christ that when it came to right standing with god that he could stand on his own merit that he was blameless He admitted that he was a zealous persecutor of the church. He was filled with hatred in his heart, even complicit in murder. And yet he would argue, I am blameless before God. This same Paul, who in case you don't know, wrote Romans, and he wrote Philippians, and he would later say, after his conversion, that he was the chief of all sinners. Before his conversion, he considered himself blameless. In Christ, he considered himself chief of all sinners. Notice notice that subtle, well, I mean, it's subtle because it's not explicitly stated, but it's, but it's glaringly obvious the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. blameless chief of all sinners. What is the surest sign that you have been born again and saved? It is that you recognize that you are no that you are not righteous, but you are in fact chief of all sinners and Christ died for you. Paul's confidence before his conversion was, as he says in Philippians 3, in the flesh. In other words, in his proven track record, in his performance, in his dedication, his commitment, in his hatred for those outside of his camp. He would be, he would be the guy in the parable. He'd be the Pharisee in the parable thanking God that he was not like the tax collector. Like Paul, all good Israelites pursued righteousness or right standing with God as if it were based on works. Now the problem was not that the Jews pursued the law. The law is holy and right and just. Paul has already made that clear that there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is God's, revelation. The problem was that the Israelites pursued the law of God rather than the God of the law. The problem is the Israelites pursued the law of God rather than the God of the law. Rather than honoring the Lord and seeking him with all their hearts, they tried to indebt God by their obedience. Rather than trying to honor God, they sought to indebt God. Is there a difference there? It was not the observance of the law that Paul critiqued, but pursuing it as if it were based on works. If they had sought the Lord with all their hearts, then what they would have found in Christ was God. If they had been seeking God with all of their hearts, when Christ showed up, that's exactly who they would have found. Sadly, that is not what they found in him. Paul continues in verse 32 and 33. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold... I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This stone that the Lord is laying in the path of Zion is a sanctuary for some and a stone of stumbling for others. And that's exactly what Jesus was. He came in. And he turned the Jewish world upside down. He crushed their sense of virtue. He told parables like the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. And the Samaritan was the virtuous one. The Samaritan dog was the virtuous one. And he told a parable of the reckless, wasteful, prideful, lustful, prodigal son. And of a hard-working, never done anything wrong, always a good boy, always stayed by your side, older brother. And at the end of the story, the older brother is left sulking outside the home while the younger brother is whining and dining with a fine robe and a ring on his finger. And the Pharisees, the religious people of Jesus' day, recognized that in all of these stories, they were the bad guys. Jesus is the stone of refuge for those who believe. Like the tax collector who all he could say was, Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner. And the prodigal son who, who returns to the father with his head hung low, I don't deserve to be welcomed back into my father's house, but I'll come and I'll be a servant. And here he is welcomed with open arms and the father runs to him and he's welcomed back into the home and welcomed with a feast. But for everyone else, Jesus is a stone of stumbling. He is a refuge for people who recognize I am the sinner. And he is a stone of stumbling for everyone else. He confronts our sense of pride. He demolishes our carefully crafted narratives of why we're pretty decent people. I mean, sure, I've got my faults like everyone else. But listen, at the end of the day, I am a pretty decent person. I'm a hardworking, wanna do right, occasionally fail to do that, but deep down, that's who I am. I'm a pretty decent person. And Jesus says, no, you're not. He confronts our sense of virtue and our sense of pride. He comes in like a wrecking ball to these walls of self-righteousness. We build these walls of self-righteousness around us. He comes in like a wrecking ball and he leaves us standing exposed in a heap of rubble. Some people find freedom in that. And some people scurry. The religious people of his day put him on the cross for that. He came to his own people. That's what John says. He came to his own people, and his own people should have recognized in him the qualities of God. They should have heralded him as king. They should have said, at last, our long-awaited Messiah has come. And instead, they put him on the cross. Because he dismantled these walls of self-righteousness. They stumbled over him, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But God promised whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's contrast. You can stumble over Jesus or you can believe in him and not be put to shame. You know, the Lord has always been full of mercy. You read the Old Testament, there are people that... that, that conceive of the God of the Old Testament as harsh and angry. And I wonder, have you even read it? Over and over again, God holds out mercy and forgiveness time and time and time again. And even when finally he executes judgment, he promises mercy. He says in Joel chapter 2, you shall, know, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never be put to shame. We're talking about salvation here. We're not talking about embarrassment. We're not talking about bruised pride and egos. We're talking about the shame of all shame. We're talking about God's eternal judgment. And he says, those who believe in him will not be put to shame. For those who believe in Jesus, the Lord promises sanctuary and safety and refuge from his wrath, salvation from judgment forever. You will never be put to shame. But listen to me if you will not cling tightly to the rock of refuge, you will stumble over him to your own destruction. And to your own shame. Jesus walked into a society of good, upstanding, law abiding, deeply religious people, and he called them whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers, blind guides, empty rain clouds. If Jesus had come into our day, these would be the elders, deacons, senior saints, the old guy who knows every Bible reference, the little old lady who has taught Sunday school for 50 years, the Theobro who thinks that because he's got a masters of divinity can untangle every doctrinal knot. The family man who prides himself in his work ethic, his truck, and his tractor. And the woman, the mom, whose kids never misbehave. And he would say the same things to people who trust in their own righteousness. He would tell them story after story about how preposterous it is to think about or to think that we are able to stand before God on our own merit. And these people would do to him the very same thing they did 2,000 years ago. The reality is that many people are satisfied with the reputation of godliness rather than godliness itself. Many people wanted to look like they are morally upright because this becomes another stone in the wall of their self-righteousness. But salvation comes when a person's walls of self-righteousness crumble all around them. And when they see their life the way the Lord sees their life. When they come to that sober reality that the only stone that offers any salvation is not the stone of church attendance. Is not the stone of refraining from rated R movies. Not the stone of having kids that are mild-mannered and cleanly clothed. Nor the stone of voting pro life, nor the stone of working sun up to sundown, nor the stone of attending multiple Bible studies every week, nor the stone of what appears to be a perfect marriage, nor the stone of involvement in ministry, nor the stone of, and I could go on and on and on and on. Salvation is seeing all of those stones laying in a heap of rubble and rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because now you finally see life as Paul described in Philippians 3. You finally see your life, all of your virtues, all of your things that you clung to, that you sought refuge in, that you built up around you. You see them as Paul did. Rubbish. Garbage loss, and like Paul, you count it loss, you gladly give it up for the sake of gaining Christ and being found in him. The Christian rejoices when their stones of their own self-righteousness lay on the ground. You rejoice because you finally see Christ, your sanctuary, your rock of refuge, and you cling tightly to him, forsaking everything else in which you once sought refuge. You know, earlier in our worship service, we sang glorious day out of the darkness, We talk about coming out of the tomb, and the thought hit me. So many people are building up these walls of self righteousness, thinking that in them they have refuge, but what they're building is their own tomb. And Jesus comes and he wrecks these things and leaves them in a rubble. And the Christian rejoices over that because now they are free. And now they have life. But the person who trusts in themselves for righteousness flees, and they stumble over the rock. The Christian clings to Christ, the rock of refuge, and they don't stop clinging. They don't let go. Jesus is not another stone in our self righteous tomb. It's Him or nothing. You get Jesus or you get your own tomb of self righteousness. You choose. You don't put Jesus in your wall of righteousness. It's all or nothing. I fear that some people make the mistake the Galatians make. See, there's nothing new under the sun. I fear that that, that there are Christians today that make the same mistake the Galatians make. And Paul rebuked them, saying in Galatians 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Some people know that they could not do anything to earn their salvation, their justification, their right standing with God. But for some reason, they think that they are able to do something to merit sanctification, to bring about sanctification. I was talking with Ben Levicka this week, and he put it like this. It's thinking I'm justified by grace but sanctified by works. Ben and I talked about how many people think or we think might conceive of God as looking down on them with an angry scowl and, and, and Ben sort of you know, made this gnarly face and, and, and was pointing down and, and, and he said, I wonder how many people think of God like this. And he's up there and he's, and he's, just, he's, he's ready to smite you. And he's and he's ready to crush you. He he's he's beleaguered and, and, he, and he's and he, and he's begrudged to 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 call you his child. You're a failure. How many people think this way of God? And they think to themselves, if I can just kick this habit if I can just fix my marriage, if I can finally make this work, if I can straighten myself up, if I can clean up my language, if I can quit looking at porn, if I can put down the bottle or the pills, if I can finally get my kids in control, If I can just figure this out, then finally God's face will turn from a scowl to a smile. Daz, I'm convinced that that the, the most important thing we can do for our kids is not become an obstacle over which they jump to understand God is a loving father. God is not scowling at you. He's not wagging his finger at you. There is nothing that you can do to cause God to love you more. And there is nothing that you can do to cause God to love you less. God's love for you, Christian, beloved child, is perfect and unchanging. Do you believe that? Oh, if I could just replace some bad habits with some good ones, if I can work hard to provide a decent life for my family. If I can keep a tidy house, if I can satisfy my husband, if I can satisfy my wife, oh, maybe God would smile on me. Maybe God would be proud of me. Does God love your sin? Does God enjoy your sin? Does God even tolerate your sin? By no means. That's where you need to look to the cross and keep looking to the cross. Because it is there that your sin debt, and it was incredible, your sin debt. It was there that your debt was paid. Not in part. This is where we get tripped up. The hymn has been around for how long, Andrew? I don't know. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I'm convinced that Christians today look at the cross and they go, okay, the sin that I committed before a Christian was nailed to the cross. And God got me this far, and now it's up to me to finish the race. Now it's up to me to finish. It was there that he put his son to shame. Listen. So that you would never be put to shame. It was there that he put his son on the cross. And I want you to hear the words, it is finished. And I want you to know that this applies to you. I want you to think, well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the exception. So many people think, I'm the exception. Well, well, well yes, Jesus is proud of, of, of this guy or that woman, but he's never proud of me. If I could just be like them, then he'd be proud of me, then he'd love me. No, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, amen. Stop building those walls back up. Jesus comes in like a wrecking ball. He, he destroys these walls of self-righteousness. He leaves us exposed. And then what do we do? We start putting stones back up on top of stones. Okay, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dismantling this tomb, these walls of self righteousness. I got it from here. Now I'm going to put this stone back on top of here. I'm going to be a good church goer. I'm going to tithe on everything. If my garden does good, I'm giving 10% to the pastor. That's all right, you can do that. I do prefer pies. Jesus, I'm not going to watch Rated R movies. Jesus, I'm not going to cuss. Jesus, I'm not going to do this. Jesus, I'm not going to do that. Boom, boom, boom. This is where we need the rock of Jesus to smash these walls to pieces. We need to look at the cross of Christ and we need to weep hot, tears of joy, of relief, knowing that it was there that the Lord paid our debt in full. It was there that the Lamb of God took away our sin once and for all. It was there that the Son of God was stricken by God, cut off and cursed so that we would become children of God, adopted into his family and blessed beyond measure. You ought to rejoice in this dismantling of your walls of self-righteousness. Is the Lord crushing you Right now, is he crushing your sense of pride? Is he crushing your sense of virtue? Rejoice over that. This is a great day for you. Is the Lord attacking this self-righteousness, these walls that you've been building up? Rejoice and come out of your tomb. Let Let the walls fall down. Cling tightly to the rock of refuge. It is only when you recognize that those walls of self it's only when you recognize the walls of self righteousness for what they are, and when they crumble down and they're laying in in a heap of ruins around you that you can then finally understand that once you pursue righteousness as if it were based on works, and it is only then that you can finally truly see Christ as the rock of refuge. You have been justified by faith, and listen to me, you are sanctified by faith. You have been legally declared right with God by faith, and you are being made like Christ indeed by faith. Is there a part for you to play? Undeniably. You participate, you walk by the Spirit, and you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. But it is God who wills and works, or God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You recognize that it is God at work not only to save you, but to sanctify you from the inside out. Ben suggested that if people would really get this, that it would transform families in our church that it would change our congregation if people would truly admit that they bring nothing to the lord but their sin entire families would be changed husbands who demand perfection in their homes Because they need that in order to feel a sense of worthiness as a man of God. I have heard so many stories of pastors, homes, in shambles. Because he has this this idea that that if, if I'm going to be worthy as a man of God, then my family better be on their best behavior. And wives, wives who are cold and they are controlled by their emotions and they control with their emotions because they simply must keep up appearances. And kids who envision their heavenly father as a tyrant. As a distant, hard, hard to please father. And they obey legalistically so that they don't upset the apple cart. Men who have convinced themselves well, God helps those who help themselves. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm a hard worker. and I'm going to make it work. And women who believe that they're second-class citizens in the kingdom. If everyone would truly understand that they bring nothing to Jesus except their need. And they find nothing in Jesus but mercy and grace. And if they would put their faith in the Son of God and pursue righteousness by faith and not as if it were based on works, entire families would be transformed. I noticed something this morning as I read, or this week as I read Romans. You know, I've encouraged you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 each week as, you, as we work through these three chapters. And this week I was reading in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, and I, and I saw the connection to Romans 9, 33. So Paul says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He comes back to this verse in, 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 10, in 9.33. He goes back to it in 10.11. He, he says, for if, if scripture, go back to that please, Beth. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What does that come on the heels of? Now let's go back to verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. And then he says, for scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he says in verse 13, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, Jesus is a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense for many people. Because people are convinced that somehow, because they're pretty good people, They're salt of the earth. They're good citizens. They're law-abiding. They're Americans, by golly. They're good enough to stand before God. And you will stumble over Christ because Christ will smash those walls to pieces. But if you will call upon the name of Jesus, if you will hope in him, and not in your own righteousness, you will be saved. You know, when Paul was saved, it was painfully obvious to him how messed up his way of thinking really was, how impotent his vain efforts were at attaining righteousness, and how empty his hope of works-based salvation really was. I also had a moment in my life in which all that mattered to me, all that I trusted in, hoped in for a sense of worth and identity and achievement. And yes, I would argue now in hindsight, even salvation, everything that I hoped in fell on its face. And I pray that the same has happened for you. I pray that the Lord has dismantled and that he keeps it dismantled the walls of self-righteousness behind which we are so prone to seek refuge. And I pray instead that we will pursue righteousness by faith, not as if it is based on works. And I pray that we cling tightly to the rock of refuge, Jesus, our solid rock, because whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. Father, it is only by grace that we can call you that. We don't deserve that. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Show us how we are are, are stacking stones of self-righteousness that Jesus has dismantled. I pray, Lord, that we would put no hope in what we achieve, but we would stand on Christ, the solid rock. that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching and we hope that you were blessed.